Thank you for joining us for this Vetfolio podcast on hypersensitization. What do I need to know and why do I need to know it? Brought to you in part through the support of Elanco Companion Animal Health. During this session, we'll explore how chronic pain becomes maladaptive and the clinical implications of pain that has become amplified in intensity and scope from chronic inflammation. We're pleased to bring you today Dr. Mark Epstein, a board-certified diplomat of the American Board of Veterinary Practitioners and senior partner and medical director for Total Bond Veterinary Hospitals, a group of five AHA-accredited primary care hospitals in North Carolina. And now Vetfolio is proud to present Dr. Epstein. Hello and welcome to uh, our podcast on pain hypersensitization and If you are tuning into this, congratulations. You can declare yourself to be a certified pain geek, and uh, congratulations and welcome to the club. However, if you're a little bit more casual and still want to know what sensitization and hypersensitization is and its implications, you're in the right place. Because it turns out that pain processing becomes uh, aberrant, it becomes maladaptive, it goes sideways, things go wrong with it, And it's all because of this process of hypersensitization. The vernacular term often have been heard as wind-up. And wind-up is a fairly kind of a metaphorical term, but it doesn't really describe what's happening and why it's important. So that's what we're going to drill down into a little bit more now. So just a brief review on pain processing. You have peripheral nerve endings that take a first-order neuron up to the spinal cord where It forms a synapse with a second-order neuron, which then goes up to the brain. Now, that second-order neuron actually goes to the thalamus, and it synapses again with a third-order neuron, which projects to the areas of the brain where you both perceive the pain and also have some emotional responses to it. But the main synapse we're going to talk about in terms of modifying pain up or down is in that dorsal horn, that synapse between the first and second-order neuron. Now, keep in mind that at that synapse, it's not like a one-way circuit here where, where pain signaling just goes one direction up to the head. It's a circular potential problem. You have uh, good and bad that can come down from the brain to the spinal cord and interfere with uh, in a good way often by inhibiting those impulses in the spinal cord. And then you can have impulses that go from the spinal cord back down to the periphery where an afferent neuron, which normally carries impulses uh, orthodromically up to the spinal cord, now come antidromically, uh, becomes a, an efferent neuron, and that is usually bad because when those efferent impulses come down to the periphery, it causes release of histamines and recruits more white blood cells and basically drives inflammation, which, of course, recruits more nociceptor activation, which, of course, worsens the problem. So you have impulses going up to the spinal cord in the brain and then from the brain down to the spinal cord, usually inhibitory in nature, and from the spinal cord down to the periphery when things start going wrong, and that is excitatory and bad when that happens. So there are certain risk factors for these systems to go awry, and I'm going to go ahead and give you a handful of them so that you can kind of get the visual. Let's begin with chronic pain or chronic inflammation. Well, that's really the domain that we're really discussing when it comes to osteoarthritis. There's no susceptive impulses coming from that synovium uh, 24-7, seven days a week, and year in, year out. Those impulses, when they reach the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, doesn't just give like a little squirt 
of excitatory neuropeptides across that synapse to the second-order neuron, but more like a tidal wave at times or really more like a tide of that has come in and won't go out. So it's a constant ebb instead of like a little squirt of neuropeptides, glutamate being a prime one, but there are others as well, substance P, even prostaglandins and others. So when that happens and that second-order neuron is really being depolarized over and over and over and over again, you end up having microanatomic changes and molecular changes. There are ion channels that begin to open when they didn't open before. So I'll give you a classic example, and that is the NMDA channel. That is a sodium and calcium channel that normally stays closed when there's like short, brief spurts of pain, like a squirt of glutamate instead of a tidal wave or a huge ebb that is never going away. Well, when the glutamate is binding to the NMDA receptor, eventually, 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 there's a little magnesium plug that gets away, and that channel opens eventually, and now sodium comes in, calcium comes into that second-order neuron. That depolarizes that second-order neuron in a sustained way. It kicks off a cascade of events in that neuron that ends up involving substance P, the NK1 receptor, nitric oxide, and many other compounds that lower the firing threshold of that neuron. So now it doesn't take as much to light it off. Before, it would have been fairly resistant to that, but now it's very, very sensitive. When that begins to happen, you have now a flood, essentially, of impulses that are kind of constantly going up to the brain. That is your chronic pain. But some of these systems that begin, the adaptive systems that begin to happen, can't dampen it down. And you end up having, instead, things starting to go in a very bizarre direction. For example, the glial cells are normally considered cells that are in the spinal cord. You were probably taught of them as being supportive in nature. The astrocytes are kind of architectural, where the neurons are suspended. Microglial cells or macrophages that kind of run around and clean the joint up. And not really involved in pain processing. It turns out that is some embedded mythology that the glial cells are highly involved in pain processing. That in fact, when there is nociception, glial cells get activated by tissue damage, by, in the case of microglial viruses and bacteria again, because they're, they're macrophage, or, uh, they're immune competent cells in nature, and they become hypertrophied. They literally move. They literally wrap themselves around that synapse between these first and second order neuron, and now they become integrated into pain processing. In fact, now the glial cells can start secreting glutamate. They can start secreting calcium and other ions that then bind to and then light off that second-order neuron in ways that are even more dramatic than the first-order neuron would have implicated. And furthermore, these glial cells secrete nerve growth factor. Well, what that does is it starts all these neurons in the spinal cord start sprouting little nerve endings, and now you've got pain fibers talking to touch fibers and pressure fibers, and so now touch is painful or pressure is painful when it otherwise shouldn't be. This contributes to the clinical signs of hyperalgesia, something that's painful but more painful than it should be, or it is aldenia, which is where mere touch or brushing can be painful. This is what happens in people with fibromyalgia, for example, and other conditions. So that's part of the story, and uh, that's kind of an oversimplified version of what's going on in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Remember that there are these impulses that can start going back down in an efferent, antidromic direction, the wrong direction, if you will, 
down to the periphery. And when the when it reaches the nerve endings and the terminal nerve endings in the periphery, in the joint, for example, well, we have the tissue there becoming hyperexcitable. We have more inflammation that begins to occur. We have other nociceptors that have their firing thresholds reduced, and in fact, they become involved when they were kind of innocent bystanders. They weren't involved in the original problem, but now they are. And of course, now we have all those uh, nociceptive action potentials going up to the spinal cord, and it becomes kind of a circular problem. So this is what happens with chronic pain, more or less, and again, in kind of an oversimplified version, and it can be this kind of circular, vicious cycle of a problem that just gets worse and worse. At the end of the day, what you end up having is pain that is exaggerated, amplified, and exaggerated in uh, intensity with other kinds of noxious stimuli are now painful, and we have expanded in scope. So it's not just, for example, the knee that hurts, even though that's where the cruciate injury was. Maybe it's the whole distal limb that hurts, or maybe up the limb towards the hip. So the field expands, the intensity expands, of course, the duration expands as well. Now, there are other uh, conditions, by the way, that can create the sensitization process. I've just talked about chronic inflammation doing it, but I don't want you to get the idea that it's strictly a chronologic event, that it's only with chronic pain, that in fact the circumstances for a hypersensitized spinal cord can occur almost instantaneously, and you do it probably on a regular basis. So I'll give you that example. That's amputation, or any kind of, anytime there's nerve injury, when you do an amputate, you're going to cut to the nerve. So nerve injury sets up the circumstances for neuropathic pain and hypersensitization like almost instantaneously within a matter of seconds or minutes. We can have large amounts of tissue trauma. So maybe it's trauma that came into you, big dog, little dog, or hit by car, and now you have to go in and fix the fracture or reconstruct the skin. So it's trauma on top of trauma. Or maybe the dog or cat didn't come in with a lot of trauma, but you're going to create a lot of trauma surgically. So maybe taking off a large soft tissue sarcoma or mast cell tumor or radical mastectomy. All of these things can set the stage for hypersensitization. Of course, there are genetic factors as well that we don't fully understand that makes some people or some animals more prone to having it happen too. So when we think about the process of hypersensitization, it gives us opportunities because just giving anti-inflammatories by themselves is not going to address this. This is sensitization is beyond what simple anti-inflammatory agents can do. And that means that we pull out other drugs out of our formulary to address this aspect. So these are things like gabapentin, which basically downregulates calcium channels so that the nerve function becomes sluggish, if you will. That's why it works as an anticonvulsant in the brain, but we're talking about it, what's happening in the spinal cord with these neurons. So think of a sensitization as being a little bit of like a, a seizure, if you will, of the spinal cord or in the spinal cord, and you can see how gabapentin would have an effect there as well. Medications like amitriptyline, even tramadol, for all the concern about how well tramadol works, one of its mechanisms of action, along with amitriptyline and the SNRIs and the SRIs, serotonin and serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, all these compounds, all these drugs enhance the inhibitory pathways by serotonin norepinephrine being inhibitory neurotransmitters. Amantadine is a NMDA receptor antagonist. So that's why these kinds of drugs have a prospective benefit when it comes to a hypersensitized spinal cord and peripheral tissue, above and beyond what non-steroidals can do, or even opioids for that matter, and we use them to great clinical effect. So these are patients that have pain that has gone sideways. It's maladaptive. 
and it has at least a neuropathic component because we have these biochemical, cellular, microanatomical aberrations that have now occurred. They're not supposed to be there, but they are there. So just to give you some additional visuals about some of the patients that you might run across that have neuropathic pain or pain with a neuropathic component, and it may not kind of occur to you that that's what's happening, I'll give you a few examples. Let's start off with a cat. So what about the cat that, yes, it has degenerative joint disease, maybe it even has spinal arthritis, lumbosacral stenosis, very common in the cat, more common than you might realize. And as the cat gets older, you know, it's doing some of the things that you would expect a cat with DJD. It's not jumping up as high as it can or it has to slide halfway down the, you know, the dryer before it can, you know, get down to the floor or go to a chair and then down to the floor. So those are real typical behavior changes in a cat with DJD. But some of these cats over time, the owners will report, if you ask and prompt this kind of a question, they don't want to be petted anymore. So they just walk away. Or maybe they even get aggressive about it, but they don't want to be petted. They don't want to be held. In all likelihood, these cats have hypersensitization. They have a neuropathic pain component where it's not just the arthritis. It's not just the inflammation in the disc space or lumbosacral space or the knee or the hip or the elbow. It is where the pain is distributed much broader than that and probably affecting even the cutaneous tissue, so the skin. So they don't want to be held, they don't want to be touched, they don't want to be petted. So that kind of behavior change is probably related to hypersensitization of the spinal cord. Here's another couple. What about cats that have about the lymphocytic plasmacytic gingivitis stomatitis? I recognize we don't fully understand this disease at all open our minds a little bit, and another component may come into play. So surely there's some kind of pathology going on in the gums and the teeth of these cats. But with all the inflammation that's going up to the spinal cord 24-7 for months, years, in fact, and some of the cats that may have this condition the worst, I can't help but believe that there's not a neurogenic component, that there are also some of these, not some of these aberrant, efferent impulses coming from the spinal cord down to the periphery in the mouth and then causing even more inflammation than would otherwise be there. And, of course, the problem gets circular from there. So that means that maybe if we think about lymphocytic plasmacytic gingivitis stomatitis as a, a pain condition in addition to an inflammatory condition, maybe infectious or even immune-mediated, that we have other tools that we can bring to bear for these kitties, maybe. Another one is feline idiopathic or feline interstitial cystitis both on the human side for analogous conditions in women and on the veterinary side with the highest authorities in this condition, Dr. Buffington at the Ohio State University, for example, do not believe any longer that this is a, a bladder disease per se, that the bladder is the target organ of a maladaptive pain state, and that that's why when we think about treating it, and we use, for example, amitriptyline to reduce anxiety. That was the work in the 90s and why we think amitriptyline was working for the frequency and severity of these episodes in cats, that maybe we were actually also treating pain in those cats. So it's not just a mechanical disruption of the proteoglycan layer, for example. It is really something intrinsic where pain, nociception, and the sympathetic nervous system are all wrapped up into one problem, and in this case, the bladder is a target organ. Similarly, in humans, inflammatory bowel disease is considered a condition with a neuropathic pain component. In addition to the clinical signs of diarrhea, vomiting, constipation, people experience chronic pain in their belly with it. 
too. Those are some conditions. There are others uh, that are out there that we can uh, talk a great deal about. thought I would kind of end with that, and I thank you for tuning in. Uh, just keep your eyes open for patients that are experiencing a variant pain, and think about your osteoarthritis patients and degenerative joint disease in cats as having more than just inflammation. Thank you. We hope that you've enjoyed Dr. Epstein's remarks today. If you have not already joined us for Dr. Epstein's in-depth web conference entitled Rethink Osteoarthritis, an Evidence-Based Approach, please visit us online at vetfolio.com for details on his lecture or to access any of our past web conferences. On behalf of Vetfolio and Alonco Companion Animal Health, thank you for participating in this podcast.